the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Cool. Hello, it's seven o'clock, and some of you will be wondering why we're in this bit. Well, we're starting our time together here for a very particular reason, but that will become clear in just a moment. Um, I want to say good evening to you all and welcome to our time together. Most of you probably know me. If you don't, I'm Andrew, and I'm so glad that you're here. Um, We are continuing in the third part of our series, Wholehearted, and uh, we're looking this evening at the second chapter of uh, Malachi. Now, why are we in here? Well, it's my plan to try and remind us of the context of where we are in Malachi chapter 2. Not just within the context of Malachi as a book, but also where God's people are in the Old Testament. Now, with the prophets and two chronicles, by that point in the Old Testament, God is warning the rebellious Israelites that if they don't kind of get their act together, bad stuff's going to happen. And sure enough, by the book of Daniel, they've been carted off into the uh, uh, into exile in Babylon. That's where we are now. We are far away from our promised land, from our home, from our temple, from where our God is, and we are here far away from where we are meant to be. We are in social and spiritual exile. We are longing for God to take us back home. Thankfully, as recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah, Cyrus, king of Persia, is allowing us to return home. Can I have a little woo? Woo! Fantastic. We are able to go home again, inhabit our promised land again, be a proper people again, and most importantly, rebuild the temple where our God lives. This is a miracle of God. He has been faithful to us and he's not forgotten us. So let's go and reclaim our promised land. In we go. Great, great. Thank you for um, indulging me in that little thing. Have we got everyone from um, exile? Are we all returned to the promised land? Not quite. Okay, we'll hang on for just a minute. Well, in the meantime, I'm going to put onto the um, screen just a bit of kind of what I was saying in terms of like the timeline, the chronological timeline of God's people. In that before, when the people were kind of in the promised land initially, up to no good. God sends them into exile. That's kind of where we kind of Daniel and tipping into Esther. Kind of on the way out, we've got um, Ezra and Nehemiah kind of coming out post-exile back in the promised land. And that's where we are now with um, Malachi. Um, similarly, books in the Bible, um, Zechariah and Haggai also dealing with very much the same stuff, very much the same kind of time. Um, and then after Malachi's last book in the Old Testament, there's a whole silent years where God doesn't seem to be saying anything and then Jesus pops, pops up um, went, went, went at Christmas time, doesn't it? Um, anyway, I think, we're, I think most of us are back now. Um, great. We are in our promised land again. Um, we're home. But there is something missing. Haggai reminds us that we need to rebuild our temple with its all-important altar. So can I have two volunteers, please, to go and get the, the table, the altar, um, from over there to be here. We need to rebuild it. Nick, great. Josiah, would you be able to help Nick rebuild, the, rebuild our temple? This is, this is very Haggai-esque, to be fair. Like, the reluctance is all good. 
great. Good stuff. We can't proceed in our being God's people without God's, God's temple. They are, well, to be fair, in Haggai they were too. And <laughs> try not to hurt each other in the phrase there. Great. And just pop it here. There we go. Perfect. Now, there we go. Do take a seat. You can relax now, and that's pretty much all of the audience participation that I had planned. So you don't need to worry. It's not like a, like a stand-up comedian where I pick on people in the front row. It's not like that. Um, great. Now, everything is coming together, and we're now able to offer our sacrifices and our offerings. We can be obedient to the law now. We can live in obedience and gratitude for what God has done in bringing us back here. He didn't forget us. He pulled through, and we can now just, relish and be the people that God wants us to be. It's going to be perfect. Right? No. The book of Malachi rounds off the Old Testament on a bit of a harsh note, really, um, that despite what God has done for his people, bringing them from captivity into their promised land, there's a, a facade of obedience. And that's all it is. Things were far from okay. And the whole book of Malachi is a dialogue between God and his people which spells out the relationship breakdown that we see. And spoiler alert, it's the people's fault, not God's. Now, it's pretty much summed up in in chapter 1, verse 2, where God says, I have loved you. And the people are like, what? Have you? Really? Have you not just seen what God's done? God has expressed his love through covenant, through promise, a relationship of God's faithfulness and the people's obedience in response. And it's a deal expressed through the law of Moses. Now, God has been faithful to his people. The people have not been faithful and obedient to him. Malachi outlines a number of different ways in which the people have broken the covenant. Violations against each other and God In the last chapter, if you were here last week, you'll see how they offered blemish sacrifices. That's an affront to God. In this one, we see how there's been unfaithfulness of many different kinds. That's an affront against each other. In the chapters to come, we're going to see how there's injustice, again, affronts against each other, and then rounding off with the people withholding tithes, again, against God. Now, we're looking at chapter 2. Nick's going to come up and, and pray for us. Um, so yeah, he's going to now read chapter 2, or most of chapter 2 of Malachi. Right, here we go, let's pray, shall we, before we look at God's word together, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity of being able to gather together, uh, to remember a people of a long time ago, who were like us, your people. And Heavenly Father, we just pray that we will learn some lessons from them, lessons perhaps that they didn't learn so easily. But Heavenly Father, we pray that we will pick them up and just notice them and recognise if there's anything within our own lives, with our own community, that needs to be changed, that we will do so. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we just pray and trust that through your spirit you will help us this evening. Amen. Okay, here we go. We're going to read from Malachi chapter 2, if you've got it in front of you, if you want to follow. Um, Otherwise it will be on the screen. But here we go. And now, you priests, this warning is for you. 
If you do not listen, and if you do not resolve to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not resolved to honour me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this warning, so that my covenant with Levi may continue." says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful, a detestable thing that has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. If anyone does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favour on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? Is it because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth? You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made the two of you one? You belong to him in body and spirit. And why has he made you one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate it when people clothe themselves with injustice, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Great. Thank you, Nick. So chapter 2, um, including the name, follows on from chapter 1, and Nick really helpfully uh, unpacked for us this awful practice that the Israelites had developed of offering God diseased animals as their sacrifices, uh, when they were meant to be offering their best animals. Nick did a really good job of explaining kind of what the sacrifice culture was all about. Um, I'm not going to go too much into the whys and wherefores of that, um, but I am going to look at the heart attitude that was going on that caused this behaviour, seeing as that's the emphasis of our chapter. In our chapter, we see it manifesting itself in different ways. We, first, he looks at the priests and what they're doing. Then he looks at the, the people marrying outside of their community and abandoning their marriages. Now, there are two threads that I think are present in uh, chapter 2 and, and probably throughout the whole of Malachi. And it's all about wholehearted worship. 
wholehearted worship in God and wholehearted worship and each other. Now, in the first uh, few verses, one to six, we get a really useful summary of the ideal and the reality of Old Testament worship. Worship done right and worship done wrong. We kind of get the, the, the image of ideal worship kind of by inverting what he's criticising. So what he's criticising is what it doesn't look like, so the opposite is what it's meant to be. So Malachi paints it this really compelling picture of what God's covenant lived out looks like. A life of shalom, peace. This image of, of Levi living a life of reverence and awe of God's name. Walking with God in peace and uprightness. People turning away from sin. First, he talks about festivals and sacrifices. This spiritual economy established by the law of Moses. This system which is managed by the priests, the descendants of Levi, as set out by God um, in a covenant with Levi in Numbers 3. The priests serving as intermediaries between God and the people bringing God's truth to the people and bringing the people's offerings and sacrifices to God. This was what was meant to be happening. But Malachi, really, he's describing that this didn't happen. This was far from what was happening. Chapter 1 again, deceased sacrifices were being given to God on the altar and keeping the best for themselves. This wasn't lapsing or forgetting or laziness that would be bad enough this was a deliberate and repeated affront to God they were making a conscious active choice to give God bad and to keep the best for their own enjoyment so corrupt and perverse was this and the priests facilitating this that God had no choice but to take serious action. Verse 2. If you do not listen, if you do not resolve to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not resolved to honour me. Now this seems to be uh, in keeping with uh, what God set out when he established the law in uh, Deuteronomy 28, many years before. Verse 2 of Deuteronomy 28 says, All these blessings will come to you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. However, in verse 15 of that chapter we see, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. The priests really should have known better. It was their job for the sake of the whole nation, to know better. It was their job to study and apply the law. Leviticus and Numbers both clearly say that sacrifices should be without defect or blemish. They knew what they were doing. It wasn't that they were neglecting to worship. They were corrupting the very act of worship. And what's all the more astounding is they did this, this affront, this awful affront, not so long after God had done the most amazing thing and bringing them back home. Matthew Henry says this, nothing profanes the name of God more 
than the misconduct of those whose business it is to, to do honour to it. They really should have known better. And things got so bad that God basically says, this is one of those verses, like, that's in the Bible. God says, I'm going to smear poo on your faces because you just don't get how bad this is. And not just poo on their faces, it's the poo from the sacrifices and he's going to cast them away. The very kickback they were enjoying would be the thing that God uses to humiliate them and shame them. John James says, The Lord would cause all that they considered to be blessings, i.e. material resources, to become a burden to them. And how often do we see this in celebrity culture? The very thing celebrities crave, fame, for example, becomes the very thing they resent, the intrusion and lack of privacy. The people had forgotten how to worship. However, we, we live in a different age. Not only thousands of years later, in a different country, in a different culture, we live in a, under a new, a different covenant. One sealed by the blood of Jesus, not animal sacrifices. One ministered to us by Jesus, the high priest, and not the Levite priests. Furthermore, um, Peter tells us that we all are the priesthood now. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, verse 5. And verse 9 of that same chapter, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And Paul, in Romans 12, tells us, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, and this is your true and proper worship. Now, both these uh, ideas, these verses, will be familiar to you if you've joined with our morning services. The, the, the beginning of our, of our morning service starts with a, you are a chosen people, this little video clip, and we've just done a, a series looking at Romans 12. So we've been thinking, um, not just recently, but over like the last year uh, or more, what we mean by worship, the full extent of what worship means. It's the day-to-day activities, the experiences that we have Monday to Friday, not just here on a Sunday. Worship can and should include all of those things. We've thought about whole life worship. We've thought about being living sacrifices. And we've been thinking about our front lines. And our passage too, it talks about what we do in our lives and our day-to-day affects our worship. It is part of our spiritual life. And I really want to affirm and emphasise that that aspect of worship too. But that's not going to be my focus today. Because this passage is talking about another aspect of worship. Perhaps the immediate thing that comes to mind when we think of the word worship. That which is particularly and especially for and to God. Now we don't tend to go to temples and offer sacrifices, but we do do other things. We praise through songs and music and noise and art and prayer and meditation and poetry and many more things too, I'm sure. 
And perhaps the most prominent of these is sung praise. What is it about song that is just so compelling? I think somehow it cuts to the very heart of how God has created us as human beings. From the garbled baby singing to people with dementia who they can't talk anymore but they can still sing. Music still gets to them. In every culture around the world in all times there is singing. Singing comes from deep within. Throughout scripture we find songs and hymns Certainly the Psalms, but also in histories and biographies and letters and prophecies. Songs are just there. In joy and grief, in triumph and defeat, in righteousness and rebellion, God's people sing. Song worship has been uh, particularly crucial um, for me on my faith journey. I grew up in a Christian family, uh, going to church, and I'd known about God and fair amount about God my whole life. Never really doubted he was there, but didn't think he was near. One year, um, when I was a preteen, maybe about 11, um, I went to Spring Harvest. Um, I enjoyed the kids' group because it had lots of fun and games. Um, I really hated the times of worship. I just sat there against a pillar, bored with a face like thunder, waiting for it to be over. Can we play some more games, please? But one time, this year, one of the leaders who I had no relationship with, no idea who they are, they just came over to me and said, just give it a go. And I did. And as I did, something clicked for me. These weren't just songs about God. I was singing these songs to God. Singing draws us in relationship to God. It sings, singing proclaims things about God. Singing expresses how we feel about God. Singing responds to what God is doing uh, in our lives. Singing is encountering God, or at least it can and should be. But as the Israelites found out, worship doesn't always carry on like that. Now, we're going to watch a video in a moment. And I first saw this video about a decade ago, and I found it... Uh, funny and deeply challenging in equal measure. It has some home truths, perhaps uncomfortable truths. And I want to say that just about every kind of thing that it gets at applies to me uh, at some point or another. And I encourage you, as we watch this video, uh, think, have, have I ever done that? Have I ever done that? Ooh. So we're going to uh, yeah, watch this video and, and you'll, see, you'll see what I mean. Great. I hope um, you had a bit of a chuckle with that, um, but also perhaps a bit of a ouch with that. Um, uh, and I, I think it's one of those things where we can laugh at ourselves. And if it was any, like if it was a non-Christian doing that, we'd be like, whoa, don't. But I, I feel that's kind of a. I think they're doing a very similar thing to what Malachi is doing with this prophecy. They're calling out wrong worship, not to put us down, but to propel us to true worship. Now, I'm going to draw just a few of the examples from that, that video because um, I think they echo what Malachi is getting at. So, first of all, I surrender some. Malachi is calling out the Israelites because they're not bringing him what he is due. 
their best? Do we bring God our best in worship? I know I don't every Sunday. I know this morning I didn't. Um, I stayed up too late. I rolled out of bed. I rocked up at church with an empty stomach. Um, Was I bringing my best? No. And I know that if I get enough sleep, I know if I have something to eat, have a relaxed morning before church, pray on my way, way over, it does wonders for me, setting me up to worship. But I didn't do that. I didn't bring my best. We, ideally, we give God our best. Whatever that looks like. If you're smashing life and you're on the up and everything's going well, give God your best. If you're really struggling right now, you give God the best of what you have got. God's not rebuking the Israelites for not giving them perfection. He's rebuking them for not giving them the best, which they have. They're holding that back. They're not giving him what they do have. So if you have little, offer that. Go through the motions. The Israelites were going through the motions. They were performing worship by bringing sacrifices to the temple in front of their community. The actions may superficially look like worship, but it wasn't. Performative praise is a slippery slope. Dishonesty to God, uh, to our community and to ourselves. Don't settle for going through the motions. If we just go through the motions, we just turn up, stand up, mindlessly do some Christian karaoke, it won't be long before God fades from our attention and, no, and it's no longer worship at all. I exalt me. What is worship for? Rather, who is worship for? The Israelites had made their devotional life all about them. How could they bend the rules so they looked holy but could scrape by with the least inconvenience? When we worship, who do we do it for? If you do it for God, the song choices, they don't matter. Your preferences, they don't matter. The music quality, it doesn't matter. Your mood doesn't matter. God deserves our worship whether or not we're feeling it. Interestingly, The more we do our worship for God, particularly when we're not feeling it, the more God will bless us through it. And times of sung worship are not a task to be completed or a thing to get through. They are an opportunity to be cherished. Now, I I don't know um, uh, how you worship. I'm not saying there's a right way to worship. Um, But my top tip is to engage with it, whatever that looks like for you, to just be engaged. And it does take effort, but it it looks differently for everyone. Especially, there's all kinds of distractions and forces working against us when we're calling out to our God. So it does take effort, but nothing can keep us from him. So my my top tips um, for what they're worth are um, engage your voice. Sing loud, sing proud. We are to make a joyful sound, not a nice sound necessarily, if you've sat next to me, you'll know it's not a nice sound. Hopefully it's a joyful sound. It doesn't matter if we're in tune. Engage your body. Use your arms and your hands and your head to adopt a posture. Whatever it is that you're trying to express to God, whether you're saying yes, God, or please, God, or kind of 
coming in repentance, express it through your body. Engage your mind, meditate and reflect on the words, on God, on yourself before God. Engage your heart. How are you really feeling? Are you bringing all you can? And most of all, engage with the Lord. What does the Lord want to say to you? What is the Lord inviting you to do? What is the Lord offering you? Sing of your love on Sundays. Sung worship. We've talked about how worship goes through the whole week. And and sung worship goes through the whole week. It's not just to hear on a Sunday. Why don't you sing as a family, a friendship group, a home group? Why don't you include praising in your uh, devotional time? Why not go for a walk, probably away from people, and just belt out some praises to God? I've done that before, and you stumble upon someone, and they give you some weird looks, but then you're off and make me see them again. It's fine. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, those are my, my tips. Um, and it's not lost on me that we won't get an opportunity particularly to do that tonight. And I think that's right. I think, um, yeah, next Sunday or the next time you're at a place of gathered sung worship, bear some of those things in mind and, and bring your best and engage, engage with God. Um, right, the second thread, wholehearted worship and each other. Now, as um, we looked at earlier, uh, Malachi is not operating in a, value, uh, in a vacuum. He's, uh, not, he's talking to a community that, that they've been on a bit of a journey. It's a story of God's people unfolding here. And Malachi was probably around um, the same time as, as Nehemiah. Uh, they call out very similar patterns of sinful behaviour. They're talking about the same people at the same time. Uh, Malachi is probably around when Nehemiah was writing his stuff. Now, Nehemiah, he records what the, the people of God were up to just a little bit before Malachi's time, what he's writing about. Now, Nehemiah, he writes about the Israelites where they are doing worship well. And I think a really good example of this is in Nehemiah 12. Now, a bit of context, they've come back from exile, they're just setting up shop, and one of the things you've got to do when when you're building a city in Jerusalem is you've got to build some walls, because they're protection, um, and it's establishing the city. They're dedicating their walls to God. Now, I've drawn out just some verses, because it's quite a lengthy bit, um, but do go away and and really have a a dig around with it. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds a bit like what our church services could be like. Right, they're up there if if, if you want to read them. Um, So, verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived, and they brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs and thanksgiving and with music of cymbals, harps and lyres. So first of all, they've got a band together. Verse 31. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. Not one, but two choirs. All right, okay. Verse 36. Ezra, Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession, so they've got the preacher sorted. Verse 42. The choir sang under the direction of Jezariah. They even had a worship leader. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Verse 43. The whole community of God prays. And this was noticed. So I mentioned earlier that I was running a bit late to church this morning. Um, 
the latest I've been for quite a while. And as I was coming up this way, as I turned the corner, I could just hear you singing. It was amazing. I could hear people praising God. And I just wonder, like, our, our, our neighbours, our, our physical neighbours, what, what must they make of the noise that we make, the joyful noise that we make? Now, worshipping is a characteristic of communal life, as we saw um, with these people. Many people are involved in leading it and joining in with it. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's great. It's great that we get to do this together. And actually, singing with you was the thing I missed most during the COVID restrictions. Like, absolutely. I really missed it. And even when we gathered together but we couldn't sing, oh, I found that so hard, so close yet so far. Praise worship is a communal thing. And we should be helping each other to do this. We should be leading by example. We should be encouraging each other, giving tips to each other, sharing what we find helpful and unhelpful. We should be praying for each other. Pray for those who lead and facilitate our worship at the front, at the back, like behind the scenes. It all really helps. Pray for them. Worship is not just me and God. It is us and God. And I think this beautiful picture of the community of Israel praising and worshipping God, really going for it, is why Malachi is just so exasperated. They can do it. They used to do it. They used to worship so well. Where has it all gone wrong? He also highlights that what we do as individuals has an impact on the overall spiritual health of our community. And we've seen that in the the second half of our passage. Verse 8, to the priests, he says, You have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. And verse 9, You have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of law. The leaders of the community were letting the people down by not teaching God's word. They weren't teaching the truth, and they were playing favourites. This was one of the reasons why the worship in that community just went wrong. The people that were meant to be overseeing that just dropped the ball. We do no one uh, any favours if we leave uh, their obvious sinful behaviour unchallenged. Obviously we call out sinful behaviour in a gracious, loving, gentle way, but call it out we must. And Malachi, moving on to talking to the community at large, verse 10. Uh, why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? So it's getting at two things in the last bit of our passage. First, desecrating the holy place of worship that the Lord loves, the sanctuary, by marrying outside the community, women who worship foreign gods. Now this isn't a, a nationalistic thing, it's not a race thing, it's very much a faith thing. They are looking for satisfaction elsewhere. They're abandoning their own people, their own community of God's people, seeking satisfaction elsewhere. The second thing that is calling them out on their unfaithfulness to each other is through abandoning their marriages. Uh, verse 14. The Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. While the Bible outlines several circumstances when divorce is permissible, just being bored of your wife and fancying someone else who you ditch her and follow her, that's not one of them. Notice in verse 13, 
He floods the Lord's altar with tears. He weeps and well because no long, he no longer looks with favour on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. God is not accepting their offerings, their worship, because of their unfaithfulness to each other. What we do in our lives, in our day-to-day lives, the behind-the-closed-door lives, affects the spiritual health of our community. We are a body. In summary, Malachi brings a strong rebuke to the people, the priests and the people. He is so emphatic because he is, he's been captivated by what they could be, the compelling community of worship Israel had been and should have always continued to be. He was calling out their cynicism and their religious malaise. There are no new instructions here. He's just pointing them back to what God has already said. But how did they get from that worshipping community of Nehemiah 12 to the cynical people of Malachi? How do we go from worshippers to cynics? Speaking for, for me, when I knowingly fail to follow God's way in whatever area of my life, the reason often is because I've lost sight of how God loves me. How God could possibly love me. And when we feel like this, we, look, we need to look no further than the cross. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you, he died for me. Absolutely, we did not deserve it. Absolutely, we weren't lovable. But it was never about that. But quite how much God loved us anyway. He loved us so much that he died on the cross to make us lovable. And that is why we can and must worship him. 